welcome to the Lutheran History Podcast, where we cover over 500 years of Lutheranism. We hear new stories, examine old heroes of faith, and dig into the who, how, what, and why of history making. So whether you are a Lutheran seeking to understand your faith's rich roots, a history lover, or a person looking for stories of trials, tragedies, and triumphs, you'll get what you're looking for right here. Today's guest is Alex Akra, a Master of Divinity student at Luther Seminary, St. Paul, Minnesota. He's a graduate of Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, and his paper, Lift High the Word of God, received an honorable mention from the 2020 Abel Ross Wentz Prize of the Lutheran Historical Society in the Mid-Atlantic. Alex, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Alex, in your article, uh, the full title is Lift High the Word of God, a Social and Theological Examination of Altar Pulpits in Norwegian American Lutheran Churches. It focuses on an unusual oddity in church architecture, the altar pulpit. Now, since we're on a podcast and I'm only going to be able to show one picture as the episode thumbnail, can you please describe for us what altar pulpits look like to give us an idea of what we're going to be talking about today? Of course. And actually, the photo that will be the the thumbnail is a prime example of of the typical Norwegian model. Uh, They were these, in Norway at least, there were these monumental structures uh, that usually took up the entire chancel. And it's the, you know, the kind of the typical altar, altar frame. And then from the altar frame, where usually churches would have a painting, a pulpit extends over the altar table. And these, I mean, that's kind of the, that's the, that's the standard Norwegian design that the majority of churches in Norway have. Uh, and very few of them were copied exactly like that on into the American context, except for uh, St. Olaf, which is the, uh, the thumbnail of this segment. So are Norwegian Americans unique for having pulpit altars at all? No, uh, you can see them throughout Protestant Europe, um, but they especially follow this wave of pietism as it flows northward out of Germany. Uh, Germany has quite a few, Denmark has quite a few, and Denmark and Norway were joined. It was a single kingdom for several hundred years and a single state church. And so a lot of the architecture, both civically or within the church in Norway, mirrored that of Denmark. And so that's really how they enter enter the country. It's through these port towns or, you know, at uh, the garrison church in Trondheim was one of the earliest ones. And that's built by the king of Denmark for the garrison uh, in Trondheim. And that's kind of where this idea enters. But it it comes out of Denmark into Norway. And that's where they really take off. Sorry. Oh, oh no, no, that's that's a very <laughs> thorough explanation and exactly what I'm looking for. Uh, I, I, I'm just assuming most of our, our audience members have maybe never seen an altar, altar pulpit or, or have run into one. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that's just because I'm assuming people are more like me or I haven't seen one yet. Um, that brings me to my next question. Where can these altar pulpits be seen today? Are there any still around? Are there churches still using these Lutheran churches in America? In museums, mostly the Norwegian American ones, uh, Swedish Lutherans built the vast majority of the altar pulpits in America. Germans built a few as well. And there's a Wendish church in Texas that I mentioned in a footnote. If you get the chance to glance through that, uh, they built a very European style. Uh, altar pulpit, but a lot of Swedish American churches will have them. See, the the Lutheran tradition with its dual emphasis on the preached word and the Eucharist is already set up to have an equally grand pulpit as it does an altar. And when you think about the Calvinist tradition, which downplays the Eucharist and has this emphasis on the preached word, uh, you don't quite have this monumental structure. It's just a pulpit without the altar. And so that's why it's fairly unique, I think, to the Lutheran church. Yeah, it is making a big visual statement. Like any piece of church architecture, it's really reflecting 
um, a lot of theology, not just uh, not just we, we need a table to use here. There's a lot more behind it. Yeah, exactly. yeah and I, I think, you know, it follows this wave of pietism because they have the pietists have such an emphasis on on the preaching, on the proclamation. And when you're building a church around that idea, you build it according to, you know, what works acoustically. And so that's why the the pulpit is centered where usually the altar was. And that's why you start to build churches that are square or octagonal or in a cross shape uh, rather than the typical long churches that were there, you know, prior. Yeah. And, and when we look at the pictures of these, the pulpit is elevated. It's not just someone speaking from the ground level that, that you're mentioning the acoustics. That's really going to help the voice carry yeah, as the, the pastor, the preacher is mm-hmm. uh, reading the word, well, preaching the word from above. And they're, I mean, they're preaching it because it's extended over the altar. I mean, the word is being preached above where the Eucharist is. And that's, I think that's a powerful message theologically. So just to follow up on that, so are you saying that some of these altars are saying the word is above um, the sacrament yeah. in that sense? Like it's more important than, than the Lord's Supper? Yes. Okay. And especially the communities that built them in, you know, the Norwegian American communities that built them here. That's the statement they're going for. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for explaining that. So I think in your, your article, which is... Um, in the, the Journal of the Lutheran Historical Conference for people who want to read the whole thing. Um, I think you mentioned, is there like a Perry church? Is that near Mount Horeb, Wisconsin? Yes, there are, there were two, but Perry okay. is by outside of Mount Horeb. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I was just going to mention, I vicared in Verona and then we had oh. a, a mission congregation in Mount Horeb that I would assist at once in a while. And I drove past this old, little tiny Norwegian church, I thought, huh, I bet that's neat. Uh, and I didn't realize that uh, years later, I would be doing a podcast uh, episode about one of those unique things inside that church. I should have uh, checked it out, I guess, is the lesson there. But. It's unlocked. It's a beautiful uh, little country church, long church. Uh, and it's it's a prime example that a lot of these altar pulpits exist as museums. I think there's only one that I talk about in my in my article uh, in Renner Lutheran Church in South Dakota that is used on a regular basis. The rest of them exist for special use or as a museum, which, you know, is there are benefits and there are drawbacks because they're taken care of, uh, they're maintained, and they're too, they've been restored to kind of their, you know, prime state. But at the same time, they're not being used for what they were intended. So it's, you know, you have to, you have to kind of balance that. Right. And I, I think I sense that when I took a trip to Europe, you go to all these Lutheran churches and it's like, wow, look at all these churches. And you realize, why am I here? I'm not here worshiping. Mm-hmm. I'm here like a tourist, like everyone else. And it kind of makes you a little bit sad that it's a curiosity more, more than a, a tool for worship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in your article, uh, kind of up front, you mentioned that others have analyzed these, uh, but then you offer your own five categories of altar pulpits, and you say this will really help us understand them better. Now, I'm just going to read a quote here. You write, uh, the dominant inspiring force uh, behind the design, I had a typo here in my quote of you, the design is a categorical alignment rather than aesthetic effect. Can you unpack that a bit more for us and explain what you mean? Sure. You know, I... All of these altars are categorized as folk art. And I I don't know if you can really... Appraising folk art without considering the artist's intentions or motivation is just kind of looking at bad art. I I think there is so much more depth and meaning brought forward when you consider what the artist was thinking, what their their motivations are. It, It places that work in a larger context, a larger tradition, and reveals the artist's kind of individual expression. And so when you look at, say, the the altar pulpit that was in Scandinavia, Wisconsin, and the one that was in North Cape, Wisconsin, they're visually similar, 
but they both have a pulpit that's set forward and a massive frame set behind behind that. Uh, but I separated them and put them in two different categories, old world and uh, Norwegian American, because the, the craftsmen, the builders were going for two completely uh, different things. One was trying to replicate a memory uh, from the Kongsberg church in Norway. And the other one is an American born Norwegian who's creating his own style. And the end products are similar, but the artists are working with two completely different um, mentalities. And so, it, you know, I think that's a drawback um, to what people have written about them before. And there has been very little written about Norwegian-American altar pulpits. And I don't want to knock anyone. And, you know, I want to encourage other people to kind of form their own opinions, their own arguments. Um, but they, they approach them as a finished product away from the artist, away from the context. And I think you're missing the story. You're missing the depth. And I think sadly, and you know, this is kind of the product, a lot of these articles are the product of secular journals. And so the theological kind of impulses that go into construction are overlooked or ignored. Yeah. And the, no, oh, just gonna, you know, I run into that too with other projects where it's just a lot of ignorance in the analysis. They just they just don't see things if they're approaching it from a, a secular perspective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are the, a lot of the pietists, um, they followed the, the Norwegian pietists we call Haugians. Uh, Hans Nielsen Hauge led a pietistic revival in Norway, the 1790s uh, up to the teens and 1800s. And I mean, lay preaching was emphasized um, and, you know, they were encouraged to go out and proclaim. And so when you look at Haugian churches in the United States, it's important that some of the pulpits are only four inches off the ground. You know, it's, that's, that's a statement for them. Yeah. Kind of a, a low church versus high church, mm -hmm. uh, kind of a hierarchy thing um, from what I understand. And also um, they had a lot of lay preaching too, if I'm, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, one of one of the churches I looked at, they used to just pick members that Sunday out of the out of the congregation to preach. <laughs> yeah, that that's pretty on the fringe of yes. of the Lutheran spectrum, let's put it that way. Um which which would explain maybe in some cases and I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but that would explain the the, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper being almost downplayed and really overshadowed by by the pulpit on a shelf yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I i in my note on your when i prepared for this episode i just wrote shelf pulpit because or, or, <laughs> that's really what it looks like so well let's before we get way too ahead of ourselves uh i, I appreciate your, your explanation there because i think that's really important it's not just a piece of artwork there's a lot of deep uh, theological uh, things being represented but also the motivations why are people doing this mm-hmm and you know that's that's what makes a good history project a good history project is uh, asking a question no one really seems to have asked before and putting it all together. So uh, that really comes through, and, and you have a very strong article because of that unique uh, angle. Uh, so you next uh, say that uh, your argument is, is stating that altar pulpits can be understood as a paradox. What paradox do you see here? So I had to go find my quote actually. And I, I wrote in the article, uh, their physical form simultaneously reflects different and competing tensions within the Norwegian American Lutheran Church, as well as a common underlying theology. You know, they're all more or less pietists. They have that, that sprinkled in them, um, you know, that emphasis on proclamation, on preaching, you know, over the Eucharist. But they also have different ideas of how the Norwegian American church should look like. You know, how does how do we define our own identity here? And they they approach it in different ways. And so those are kind of represented by the five categories. All right, so let's get into those categories. Uh, the first one you label the frontier. Well, what uh, is a characteristic of frontier altar pulpits? It's built on the frontier. <laughs> 
Well, no, what's that I, then? <laughs> for for our I, listeners, what's the frontier in, in your mind? That, that initial phase of settlement. And I, I actually debated not having this category uh, simply because like Old Muskego, which we've moved here to Luther Seminary's campus, which everybody is welcome to visit. So that's a place you can see one. Uh, there, I was able to find clear old world inspiration for that. Uh, in the craftsman's hometown uh, in te- in the Telemark region in Norway. But it was built only three or four years, I think three years into the Muskego. I mean, the people getting off the boat on, they've started the settlement, they've had a few years of farming, and then they build this church before they call uh, their first pastor. So it's just that it's that initial phase where they're limited by the material, by the artists available. They're, I mean, they're doing everything, hand-hewing everything themselves. So Is this time, 1840s, 1850s? Yeah. So Old Muskego is the oldest Norwegian-American Lutheran church. 1843, they begin and get the majority of the way. And I think it's finally completed in 1844. And the Muskego settlement, I think the first settlers arrive in 1839. And in 1842, a lot more arrive. And their pastor doesn't arrive until the church is nearly completed. And so, I mean, it's still early. It's very early. Um, same thing with the Haugi Log Church in Perry. Is it's 1852, only you know three or four years after the first settler arrives. So it all has to do with timing. And I, I will say that this is probably the most underrepresented section in the paper. That no doubt there were altar pulpits, you know, in sod churches or churches that were used for, you know, 10 years or something and then destroyed, and, you know, something permanent replaced it. Yeah. Well, and and, so, oh, go ahead. Sorry. You know, so I'm, I'm just going to add, you know, that's the frontier is the, the people aren't even building their homes mm-hmm. with a per- permanent mindset. It's just we need a shelter and it's going to be that log cabin that they will replace with the, a frame. Uh, house with siding and all that uh, and that you see that's just anyone who studies that frontier almost like the frontier thesis um, you just see that transition uh, the transitional phase means there's going to be a lot of change at a much more rapid pace than what we're used to and a lot more uh, upheaval as far as things go mm-hmm. yeah and we're lucky uh, to have uh, the Haugi Log Church is exactly how they left it and Old Muskego is as well. And so they exist in this weird little you know, moment in time. And that's great if you want to study that moment in time. But there, like I said, there are no doubt countless churches. Well, maybe not countless, but there were other churches that, you know, they're gone. And so we can't study them. And, I, you know, the cross church in Scandinavia, Wisconsin, is in the 1850s as well. I think 1854, 1856. But I mean, it's huge. It can seat 1,200 people. It was the largest church in the Norwegian Senate for decades, and it's ornate. And so even though it's kind of the same time period, the community has been there longer. They have the means to employ artists to build something massive. Um, they're just at a, they're at a different stage than the settlers in Muskego or Perry were when they built their altar pulpits. So then the next category uh, is what you do call the old world, uh, which I understand is a copy or a very close copy of the altar styles found in Norway. Uh, You previously note that altar pulpits uh, were, and they are found in Norway. Did you come across any further explanation to why this is? I know you talked about that, that pietist influence, um, but why were they just so popular? Did the people like them or is this kind of a top-down decision? No, the people like them. It's there's a period from I think 1795 to 1845 that a third of the churches being built in Norway uh, were were octagons. You know, the new churches, a third of them were octagons, and almost all of the octagons had combined altar pulpits, and that corresponds with this Pietistic revival that's occurring in Norway. So I think people like them. It also fit in the theology uh, that was sweeping over the nation. And I think those two things just went hand in hand. 
also, I mean, you can't get away completely from, you know, a lot of churches were medieval up to that point and they were old and falling apart. And so when people build something, they build to what's, uh, to what's new. And that's in Norway. Uh, but in the United States and this old world connection, I think artists or craftsmen built what they remembered and they built what they knew. So the cross church in Scandinavia, Wisconsin is a wonderful example of this. Uh, it's, it was based off of a now gone lost church in Sheen, which is on the coast. And they, I mean, they copied the marbling, um, you know, they painted it, but they copied the marbling that was in that church, the cross shape, um, even the way that the, um, the belfry was attached and the vertical sideboards. I mean, so they, they remembered those things and they try and replicate them. And it, it doesn't quite get all the way there, but it gets pretty close, close enough not to see the direct connection. So, and go ahead, sorry. No, that's fine. Um, so is that a rare thing? That's the, the, the thing that I got out of your article is that this is almost like an exception rather than the rule where Norwegian immigrants are coming and they're just copying, copying what they remember from the old country. Um, mm-hmm. So why, why is that rare? Why, why, why do you think they aren't always doing this? I would kind of assume people, uh, especially that first generation would want to, especially when it comes to, to faith and religion, really keep uh, their ties to their homeland. You know, I, I'm not quite sure exactly why they, why they copy and why they don't copy. I think the, the congregation or committee would direct the craftsmen, and sometimes there would be a disconnect there. We see that in the Renner, South Dakota, that the craftsman, according to the, you know, the oral history is told, you know, he's described to, or, you know, the, the committee describes an altar pulpit in Norway, and he kind of builds it. And he may have had firsthand knowledge. He may not have had firsthand knowledge. He was Norwegian, though. Um, and so there's, you know, just kind of that disconnect, and you can only go so far off of memory. I also think, and it's it's interesting, a lot of these altar pulpits and kind of the the octagon churches or the cross churches, they exist prior to the 1860s. After that, uh, the majority of Norwegian American churches, the vast majority, are are long churches. They're neo-Gothic, and that becomes the the preferred and the preferred way to build a Norwegian American Lutheran church. And it it may be we've they found a way to express Norwegian identity better. You know, I I've never been in a position where I've had to define my own identity in a new place. It's just, I'm an American. It's just kind of assumed it's an errant, um, but for them, they're, they're Norwegians, but they're living in America. And so they have to define the Norwegian identity. And so I think for some reason, there's a fad that takes place, these neo-Gothic churches and that that's what they start building. And they move away from these kind of these other Norwegian options. Yeah, it's called the the land of opportunity for a reason, and a lot of opportunities to do things differently. So, yeah, uh, probably explains it. So, next, you 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 have a category called the American style, and as we we're just talking about, obviously, all of these uh, altar pulpits we're discussing today are in America. But what made you conclude that there is a distinct American altar pulpit in the churches of Norwegian immigrants? Full adoption or heavy influence. Um, so the the first two I talked about were Jefferson Prairie. And these were ones that, I mean, they look like any other Protestant church on the prairie. Uh, they're kind of neoclassical. They have two aisles leading up um, to the to the altar. And they just, they look like a Puritan preaching house. And they're, they're so different than what Norwegians were used to that they're criticized, not relentlessly, but there are a few moments in the periodicals where they criticize the appearance of these two churches as, you know, you're abandoning the Norwegian look, you're adopting to this, this new style that's foreign to us. Um, and so that was, I mean, there was a clear connect that these, the settlers want to be American and they start building how Americans build things. Uh, and the other one that 
I looked at, and that's uh, more of a famous Norwegian, Norwegian American altar, and one that's been written about, not extensively, but a little bit, is at East uh, Koshkanog Lutheran Church, kind of around Madison, that area, and it's it's based, it's a copy of an area Methodist church, and the Methodist church had the pulpit in in the center i should i should explain for people that haven't read the article east koshkanog is shaped like a diamond and at the point of the diamond is this this altar and the altar table is is curved and above that curved table there is um there's a curtain and a doorway and the when it's time for you know communion the pastor just goes up and pulls the curtain aside and steps essentially into, into the altar. It's, I mean, so unique and it's not Norwegian. It's not really American, it's Norwegian American. And it comes because this craftsman had been in a Methodist church in an area next town over. And he saw this Methodist church that was shaped like a diamond and their pulpit was at the point of the diamond. And so when he's when he's building it, I think the altar pulpit was the last thing to be built. They come to this kind of dilemma of, well, what do you do with the with the altar? We can't just put it off to the side because you know the, the Eucharist is important. We still have that emphasis. And so the craftsman just finds a way to combine them. But his his motivator was just to copy an American Methodist church. He didn't end up, well, I want to build this you know, this style of altar pulpit, and we're going to design the church around it. The altar pulpit was an answer to uh, to the design he was copying. And so the American style is just America. The American context is determining how the altar pulpit uh, will appear. Yeah, that, that's that's well put that it's just uh, America first is is kind of the, the, the driving force <laughs> and don't take that out of context, that phrase, but just the, and it's an American, you know, we're, we're being Americans first and foremost, we're blending in into our environment. Um, and that's kind of a, a reaction, it seems like, or a part of that copy. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Jens Eldahl writes about Norwegian American church buildings. He's a Norwegian academic. Uh, and he pins the rise of neo-Gothic structures on the, I think it's called the Eisenach directive. And it was a, a group of the state churches in Germany and Denmark met, and they were trying to find a way to standardize worship and church buildings. And they met throughout the 1850s. In 1861, they come out with this, this standard for uh, a Lutheran church. What does a Lutheran church look like? And it's this neo-Gothic long church with a centered altar and a pulpit off to the side. And so he kind of pins the the demise of the altar pulpit and the rise of this neo-Gothic long church on that. I don't know if that really holds up. I think it's it's kind of like trickle-down economics that on some level somebody said, yes, that's what we're going to do. But is that the reason that people were building them in you know neo-Gothic structures in northwest Minnesota? I don't think so. Um, I think they just saw things that they liked and they wanted to to replicate them. And after layer after layer after layer, you end up with this kind of standard Norwegian American neo-Gothic church. All right. So then the next category is called the minimalist style. Uh, what's the kit? How do you characterize these? So these were the the pietists of the pietists, I would say. I mean, conservative Haugian bodies uh, and the altar, well, I should, it's a pulpit. The pulpit is very low, right off the ground. And on the front of the pulpit, there is just a shelf. I mean, it's just, it's a single piece of wood tacked onto the front of it. It's unique. I could only find it in, in two places, both very, very conservative uh, congregations. And they just, they were stuck. Not that they were stuck, um, but their, 
they're microcosms. They really are. One of the congregations, for instance, required confirmation was done in Norwegian up until like the 50s, you know, when they just ran out of native speakers. That's when they kind of had to stop. Um, but they they wanted to maintain that Norwegian pietist identity. And that that extreme stance is reflected, I think, in their in their altar pulpit. Um, but they're on the fringe. Yeah. It's, uh, I think you mentioned they weren't really part of any sin- major synod or organization. They were kind of standalone congregations, if that's right. Yeah. So there, I mean, there's this kind of flow of mergers for the Norwegian Americans. And they were in groups that very early on said, we're not going to merge. We're just going to kind of do our own thing. And one of the churches ended up just kind of hopping around from different synods uh, before it ended up just kind of going its own way. Um, so the, a little more on the fringe, but yeah, and you you see that attitude towards the Eucharist. Um, the, the altar pulpit that's in now in Jackson, Minnesota, they would only end up using the altar portion twice a year. And some years, no, it was the majority of the time because they would, they only did it at their annual meeting and their churchwide meeting. That's when they would have communion. And the churchwide meeting rotated between these like eight different churches. And so most years, they only had communion once a year. And so, I mean, when your emphasis is on a 45 minute sermon and not on the Eucharist, it makes sense to, you know, minimize it to where it's just a shelf. Yeah, you know, oh, not to be a little too sassy here, but I'm almost surprised they didn't just have a folding table for it, you know, just at how how temporary or how uh, minimized it seems that it was. Now, I, I know other um, other groups of Lutherans were previously in that trend of only having it twice twice a year, but I think that maybe had to do more with um, the required confession beforehand mm-hmm. that it just took a lot of, lot of time, but this seems like you're making this, this statement that this is really, uh, one end of the spectrum of pietist Lutheranism of, of that, that low church lay preaching. The word, the word is supreme, um, uh, in, in every way. Um, and was this, a, this was lay preaching in the, these congregations too? Yes. Um, they would both, select pastors from the congregation Um, but yeah it's it's interesting because you you mentioned that the norwegian senate had communion a handful of times a year but that was done to emphasize you know how special uh, the, the importance of communion and they're you know they don't have communion a lot but that's not because they see it as this you know important thing it's more just yeah yeah (laughs) <laughs> they just kind of minimize it. So I think we answered my, my next question there. Uh, then coming up to our last style, you have the Norwegian American style. And again, aren't these all Norwegian American? Uh, I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, challenge your, your categories here, but help us understand here. What made you conclude that there's a distinct Norwegian American style? So this was the, this was my favorite category uh, and the majority of them, all of them except one um, were built by a man named Zacharias Nelson. And he was a, his parents immigrated from Norway and he was actually born on the ship during that process. And then he gets to the new world and his parents, I think die before he turns one. And so he's taken in as an orphan into this, to another family and he grows up to be a craftsman. So he's interesting because he's the only one that we can name, the only craftsman, to build an altar pulpit, but that was not born in Norway. You know, and he's not working with any firsthand knowledge of the Norwegian styles, and he's not really copying anything. He's just kind of doing, he's creating his own style. And I think this is a, a breakaway because the... The other categories were a reaction to the American context. The, the old world style, they were saying, well, no, if we're in America, we're still going to do things the way they did it in Norway. The American style says, well, let's maybe mirror what the Americans are doing here. Uh, the minimalists, they're allowed just to kind of run wild and build you know, just 
to their heart's content. And he isn't reacting to the Norwegian, to the American context. He just is a product of it. And I think that's so, so interesting. And so he builds uh, a handful of altar pulpits. He builds a replacement altar pulpit for the Muskego congregation um, twice. And the first one was the pulpit was so high that it was ridiculed in the Senate periodicals. And I think that kind of scorned him a little bit. You know, he, he had a little chip on his shoulder. And so his design, his next designs, it was a lower, um, it was a lowered pulpit, you know, with just this massive frame behind it. And it's a very distinct, uh, distinct style. And he, he builds one in Perry, and then he builds one in North Cape, another one in um, for the new Muskego congregation or new, the new church. Um, and yeah, he he was the only artist that I could find that was kind of a repeat offender to keep building them. And I, I just I I found his craftsmanship so so interesting. But, I mean, just because it is so so unique. Yeah, and it, and I mean, and you mentioned it in your article, but it's very poetic that he was born halfway between the two worlds, and he really, uh, you know, found a good. He synthesized those those styles and made it his own, and it you know had an impact yeah, on, on it. Yeah, it would. I mean, it was so. It would have been so easy to kind of just copy. Well, you know, in Decorah, they're building these neo Gothic churches. We should just build one like that. Or, well, the Americans have, you know, this neoclassical church. We could just build something like that. And he just, he starts building his own, his own thing. And there's, yeah, there's just a beauty to that. All right. Well, thank you for explaining your five categories. I encourage people to get a copy of your article if possible. Those pictures really do help um, you understand uh, those categories. But I think we, you did a good job explaining what they looked like. Um, the one that I will remember probably the longest is just the, the shelf pulpit. Uh, Cause that, that is a very, very odd looking uh, thing. <laughs> <laughs> so now just, I'm curious, you know, we talk about the word and, and, and the Lord's supper, the Eucharist. Uh, but there's a, there's another thing that's missing in, in my mind. I'm like, we talk about the means of grace as, as Lutherans. We have two sacraments. Mm-hmm. We have uh, the word of God in one hand, but also the Lord's supper and baptism. Are you aware of any attempts to just make it a trinity of the means of grace in a piece of architecture. Anyone trying to cram a baptismal font uh, into any of these? No, I am not. I I found there's a lot of variants uh, for baptismal fonts. Some are just logs that have been carved. I mean, they're just heavy, um, but none that have been kind of added to the altar pulpit. No, there wasn't, there wasn't that, emphasis as well all right well maybe you can start a new trend if you're yeah you're out there looking for a new way to change church church architecture uh and finally just your opinion do you think altar pulpits have a future or are they simply a relic of the past you know i would settle for restoration work uh there are there were a handful that especially of zacharias nelson's uh pieces that have been torn apart that the pieces are at the church. Um, the, the, the one thing, uh, the North Cape church, the, they just took the top part off of, they took the pulpit part off of the altar and it's just been sitting in a barn for 60 years. And I think, Oh, it'd be so easy just to kind of put that back, (laughs) you know, just to kind of restore it. Um, so no, I, I don't think many people will be building altar pulpits anymore. Um, but, I would hope that, you know, the few that are in the Norwegian American community, you know, could be restored. Um, there's some real possibility uh, for that. And that was the kind of the cool thing about the St. Olaf congregation is they did just that. The pulpit had been, you know, taken off in the teens or the 20s. And then within the past decade, they've they put it back on. They've restored the church to its original appearance. So, I mean, it's, it is possible. You just kind of have to have to do it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for sharing. Uh, that was part one of our podcast where we 
focused on the content of, of the research. And now, uh, since we are a Lutheran history podcast, we're not just looking at the stories, but also the story of how you told the story. So first question in our second section here is, how did you approach writing on this topic? Maybe how did you get interested in it? How did you uh, plan the, the article? I think as a, as a kid, I saw the Howie Log Church in Dane County. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. And it's so simple. And it's such an odd arrangement. And then I, when I was touring Luther Seminary here, and I was able to go in Old Muskego, I mean, I was just dumbfounded by this, by not this monstrosity, this, uh, this massive um, altar pulpit. And it, 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 was, it was unlike anything that I had, had ever seen up to that point. And so that's really where my interest uh, came from, is just seeing a few of them and wondering, well, why didn't these take off? You know, here are two very, some of the oldest Norwegian American Lutheran churches, and no one, no one copied that design. People just kind of abandoned it. So that kind of question of why did they abandon it, I just was in the back of my head. A, lo- a lot of the, a lot of the approach, it was just first finding churches that had at one time altar pulpits. It's a lot of looking, requesting church histories, asking around, scrolling through Google images even. Uh, and then once I could establish that there had existed one and going through old catalogs in the archives of people have taken photos of altars and those are cataloged, um, but kind of determining where they had existed and then going from there. Yeah, that sounds like a very time-consuming research process how do you have any idea how long it, it took you to i mean comb through i mean there must be hundreds of, of congregations you, you could have looked at uh, how long did it take you to do all this it was it was my covid project i will say that when i couldn't go anywhere else and you know luckily there are a few people in you know in my senate that have have experience that this is church crawling is kind of their hobby and so they were able to identify, you know, well, here's a church where I've seen one, or I know at one time they've had one. Uh, a lot of uh, church histories have been digitized, and that's very helpful. Um, and then once I, you know, re- you know, found out that there was an altar pulpit, I would go and request the church history from the congregation, and then usually the church minutes, because the church minutes can identify names, and with a name you can identify a birthplace. Uh, and oftentimes directives or directions to the craftsmen. You know, they can say, well, we want it to look like this and it has to be under this amount. And that's, that's helpful. So does that require some Norwegian language skills to be able to look through those minutes and stuff or? A little bit. Yeah. Basic level, but. Yeah. Which, and, and you've studied that? Yeah. I, I took a few years of Norwegian uh, in my undergrad at Luther college and it's just enough that I can, look through some minutes and understand what they're doing. Um, And once in a while um, at North Cape, for instance, I was able to find a letter um, from, I think the thirties where an older member was reflecting on them building the altar pulpit. And so little gems like that, I mean, go Mm -hmm. a long way uh, when you're just trying to kind of get in the head of, uh, of a craftsman or of a congregation. Yeah, as, as, a, as a researcher myself, it's always nice when you hit that little treasure of, wow, this just this this tells the whole story exactly what I'm looking for. So that sounds cool. Uh, so you mentioned you did this during COVID, um, but you're also a, a student that typically comes with limited time and, and limited mm-hmm. finances. What were some challenges in, in conducting your research? Was it difficult for you to to go ahead with this project? Um, yeah, I, I, the biggest challenge was just not receiving an email back from people. That was kind of my, you know, I, I need the church minutes and, you know, sometimes people didn't want to send them or send copies or anything like that. Uh, luckily people are usually very gracious, uh, but once in a while you hit a, or, you know, glad to help you along, but once in a while you, you hit a little road bump. Um, but yeah, just the time and always that, you know, you think you have all of them the majority of them and you you learn about one more yeah and so it for a time it was it almost seemed endless but 
yeah, where, where do you draw the line? You know, if you're going to say, I'm going to cover everything about this topic, uh, I mean, that could be the rest of your life that you're, mm-hmm. <laughs> you are the historian of Norwegian American altar pulpits that now you can't escape that. But yeah, that's pretty, pr- yeah, and, pretty wide. Yeah. And so it, it helped just to create parameters um, just to go by. So if Norwegian Americans didn't build the church, I didn't look at it. Uh, there were a few that had altar pulpits that they just kind of, you know, waltzed on in and started using. I just didn't use that. Um, but yeah, I, so I hopefully left my paper a little open-ended to say, well, there are probably some still out there. Um, but I, I'd like to think I got the majority of them. Again, it's such a, such an odd thing to construct that it sticks in people's mind. Yeah, it leaves an impression uh, for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, you mentioned that one letter you found um, from the 30s of someone kind of giving an account of altar pulpits that excited you. Did you have any other things that, that that you found that surprised you or excited you in this research process? Mm. I think that the fact that the one at North Cape still, it could, it could exist and it's just been in storage. I was really excited. And if I ever, you know, win the lottery, which I don't gamble, so that might not happen. Um, I would love to see that uh, altar pulpit restored. Um, so that that's kind of exciting. There's possibilities there. Um, the letter, um, again, it gave me a little bit of an insight into who Zacharias Nelson was. And something that mentioned was that he would only hire musicians, or at least everybody that worked for him happened to be a musician because they would play during their, during their lunch break. <laughs> so just there, there's that human element that is just very exciting. Yeah, absolutely helps helps you to connect to uh, what you're studying. All right, final uh, question here or question section. Do you have any unanswered questions about your topic of altar pulpits? Yeah, um, there are no photographs and there are no written descriptions of the second altar pulpit at Muskego. And that's the one Zacharias Nelson built and then was ridiculed for. And I just, I want to know how tall it was, why he was ridiculed for it. I have so many questions about that because it, it completely altered the way he, he built them. And I think it was kind of a defining moment in his crafting life. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if he uh, threw it on the bonfire, you know, just kind of, if he was that, that hurt by the feedback he was getting he maybe just destroyed all evidence of it who knows because it it was only used for a few years and then he built them a third one and so i think it i think he was pretty sour towards it yeah so do you think there are any uh more potential areas of research on this topic do you think uh, you or someone else might pick this up and take it in a whole nother direction you know i think any any altar or any church design really that breaks with that, that norm, the, the neo-Gothic long church. Now I'd love to see more research on that and maybe I'll do that, but why, why do we all build the same, the same church in the Norwegian American community? You know, and the vast majority of them, I mean, there's very little diversity when you think about it. Know, why do we build the same the same church over and over again? And there's a there's a there, there are some larger questions I think looming behind that. But yeah, so that's maybe that'll be my upcoming project to kind of lead and. But yeah, yeah, and that leads into my my next question. Do you have any upcoming projects? You're still a student. You've got a lot to do, uh, I'm sure, as you go through your studies. But uh, anything else you're you're working on or contemplating? Yeah, I was looking at the the confessional standing of the Norwegian American bodies, and they're, I think, slow and uh, they didn't really. I, I you could say they dragged their feet all the way to you know confessionalism, and I think that's that's so interesting. So I'm just kind of looking at that process. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're a, a fellow 19th century uh, American Lutheran history guy. And that's, that's my area of focus too. So if you come up with anything uh, on that, I'll be sure to be interested in it. Uh, so finally, just in general, 
on what would you like to see more research and writing done within Lutheran history? Oh, you know, um, I've been thinking a lot about the Lutherans had quite a few um, Indian schools. And I think that's a fascinating subject that we don't talk about. Um, I'm helping a professor with the Lutheran church monks, um, the slave population, researching into that. There's not a lot written about that. I think that's a fascinating subject. Um, sod churches. That's kind of the thing that I want to study, but I can't find anything on it. <laughs> <laughs> How did they build them? Why did they build them? What did they look like on the inside? Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I would find that all very fascinating. So I hope that stuff comes up and we get to talk about it. So Yeah, I, I want to study these larger questions, but I always... I get stuck on, well, this is what a church building looks like and vestments. Those are the things that I'm, I guess, sadly most interested in. <laughs> well, I think I think that will help you out in the future because that those are both very visual things. And I think that will help you connect with, with a broader audience. You know, like those pictures in, in your article that, that just uh, captured my attention instantly. And I, I just wanted mm -hmm. to find out more. So, yeah, that kind of stuff. Uh, the more the merrier. I, I, I agree. All right, so uh, just to review this episode today, we, we talked with uh, Alex Acre. Did I pronounce that correctly? Acre. Acre. I was trying to make it French, I guess. Uh, Acre. Yeah. Thank you. My apologies. Uh, and about his uh, well-done article uh, about Norwegian-American Lutheran altar pulpits. Uh, this episode will be followed in 15 days with another episode on Lutheran history. So come back and listen to us on May 15th. Alex, thank you for your time today. Thank you.